morning, church. As we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and uh, turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, specifically verses 27 through 30. If you're new to Dawson, we're journeying through Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi through this fall semester, and we come now to verse 27 through 30 of Philippians chapter 1. I ask you a question that many of you are old enough to be able to answer with crystal clarity. Where were you 20 years ago yesterday? Where were you 20 years ago yesterday? Where, where were you when it felt as if the world came to a screeching halt and the images that we saw on the television at 8.46 a.m. 20 years ago yesterday uh, could not be computed in our minds what we were actually seeing before us. Every generation has these defining national memories. Uh, there are some of you that can remember vividly where you were when you heard of Kennedy's assassination. There are others of you that remember vividly where you were when you heard of, the, and maybe we're even watching the moon landing. There's a generation that remembered very vividly where they were when they heard the news of Pearl Harbor. For my generation and the generation behind me that day, 20 years ago yesterday, was that defining national moment. I was a student at Beeson Divinity School. My wife and I were living in the Birmingham metro area, and I remember vividly being in class when the news began to trickle in. Dr. Smith, uh, who is with us, one of my professors at Beeson, snuck in today, and it's always such a joy to be able to worship alongside him. I don't think I was in his class that day, but I was in a class, and I remember at the conclusion of that 8 o'clock service or the 8 o'clock class going out, trickling out, to the commons area and the television was brought in. There I sat among our my peers, classmates and professors and we're watching these images that, that we couldn't really even compute. 2,977 men and women lost their lives 20 years ago yesterday. 2,977. I remember vividly uh, in that moment thinking of, of what I was watching and what I was viewing, I, I could not understand the, the impact of 25,000 people that would be injured in those events. Uh, I could not understand what, what it would be even to quantify $10 billion of, of damage. I, I couldn't in that moment understand the, the heroic nature of firefighters and police officers that as men and women were leaving the Pentagon, as men and women were leaving the Twin Towers, they rushed in and 343 Three firefighters lost their life that day. 72 police officers. Where were you? And what do you remember about that day 20 years ago yesterday? One thing that I remember in the aftermath of 9-11 was the way that it galvanized that tragedy. It galvanized unity in, in really unprecedented ways in our nation's history. Even in the world, you, you would go to a Fenway Park, the Red Sox are playing there, and, and you see these placards and posters of, we love New York that were there. You remember George Bush and uh, giving that uh, first, throwing out the first pitch there in Yankee Stadium and the sense of, of national solidarity. You remember even across the world, prayer vigils as, as the world came together in the midst of of a opposition of, of that heinous act that occurred and the ramifications of that. There is something about tragedy that can promote unity. 
There's something about catastrophe that can bring about a, a clarity of what really matters and what we hold dear. And in, in that moment, everyone was a, a, an American standing together in opposition of what occurred. Now, again, that unity, it wanes, no denying that. We, we need not romanticize that. We know in the weeks and the months that would come, but in those early days of that tragedy, those early days of that terrorist attack that occurred on our own soul, there was a sense of solidarity. There was a sense of unity. Well, 2,000 years before those events, the Apostle Paul, he, he, he sounds a similar call. He, he talks about how a, a tragedy and opposition and even persecution can bring about unity. It can bring about a clarity of purpose. What Paul writes about it in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Read along with me in your copy of God's Word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightening anything by your opponents. Verse 28, uh, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Verse 27, in many ways, is a bridge that, that bridges us from Paul's introduction to the church at Philippi to what's going to be the, the body of the book of Philippians here. In many ways, the thesis statement is found right here in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Paul's going to unpack in verse 2, or excuse me, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, what does it look like to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ? Notice that one word that, that starts verse 27 here, just four letters only, he says. There's, a, there's an emphasis. Paul is saying to us, listen clearly. I, you maybe remember that a Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, that talks about the purity of heart is to will one thing. The purity of heart is to will one thing. Paul says, have a purity of heart to, to will one thing. Paul, what is that one thing? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That's the one thing, Paul is calling upon us to, to relish in, to be able to live through and be challenged by. That your manner of life, that those five words there in the English translation that we have, the ESV, it's actually one word in the original language in the New Testament. It's a word that's going to come up again in chapter 3, verse 20. It's a word that has a, a political bent to it. One way you could translate it is this way, that to, to live as citizens, to live as citizens, to, to live in a way that our citizenship in an eternal home begins to, to make a difference where we live. Now, you need to understand, uh, Philippi is a Roman colony. It's not in Rome. It has been, uh, the Roman Empire has spread, and so you have Philippi. It's a place that has tremendous pride in Rome. You, you are a Roman citizen in Philippi. You have all the rights of Roman citizens in Philippi. It's a place where the military men would oftentimes go to retire. So there's a tremendous sense of civic pride that these men and women have there in Philippi. And Paul says 
that you as Christians are ambassadors. You're, you're an embassy of wherever you are. So in Philippi, live not first and foremost with the pride of your Roman citizenship, but live first and foremost as one who has an eternal citizenship. There's a call here of, of where our priorities are to be. It's a call here. Now, you might ask, well, Paul, what do you mean by this? How, how are we to be ambassadors of the gospel wherever we are? What does it look like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, again, chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 is going to flesh this out, but, but we have hints. We have, we have, in many ways, a marching orders of what Paul is going to talk about in the rest of the book that are right here embedded in verse 27, verse 28, and verse 29. When we look at this passage, we, we hear Paul saying to us, stand firm. Stand firm in God's truth. Don't shrink back in fear. Stand firm in God's truth. Don't shrink back in fear. Look again with me in your copy of God's Word at verse 27. Notice these images, these two verbs that propel us forward. Paul says, stand firm in one spirit, in the unity of the body of Christ through the capital S, Spirit, the Spirit of God that dwells in us, that brings us together. Paul is saying, stand firm in one spirit and strive together, not in isolation, but strive together side by side for the sake of the gospel, the cause of the gospel here. Both of these are military images. Paul would want us to, to think of these Roman soldiers, and as he's writing to the church at Philippi here, there, there'd be many retired soldiers would, would have known that as Paul says, stand firm, we have a defensive posture where we have an oncoming enemy that you stand firm in the face of the onslaughts and the attacks that are coming. And Paul says, stand firm in the spirit that unites us as believers. But more than that, there's an offensive image here. Paul is saying that as the church of Jesus Christ, we, we are to strive together side by side, fighting for what? The faith of the gospel. Paul is telling you, he's telling me, he's telling that church then to stand firm in God's truth. Against whom? Who, who, who are the opponents here? Look in verse 28. Do you see the opponents? The answer is no. Look in verse 29. Do you see the opponents? Detail and the answer is no. We, we don't have Paul taking a whole chapter to say, here are the opponents, and, and why would that be the case? Because everyone he's writing to would have known. I mean, we, we understand this. When, when we say 9-11, I mean, we, we're able to have that as a shorthand. And even those that, that didn't live through that day, they were, were close enough to it that, that you hear 9-11 and, and you're able to conjure up the images of what that means. And so you don't have to go into this great detail about Al-Qaeda and you don't have to go into this great detail about, about the North Tower and the South Tower and, and Pentagon that was the, the plane that was crashed into. And you have to go into United Flight 93 and, and let's roll and, and that uh, crash occurring in the field there in Pennsylvania. 9-11 is a, is a shorthand, and people that have lived through this understand what we're talking about. So Paul knows that those who he is writing to, they, they know who the opponents are. 
Now, we've got to flesh out some of these details here. There's a wonderful uh, New Testament scholar by the name of Gordon Fee who taught for years at Regent College in Vancouver, and he talks about how Paul is writing to a group of people that had a, a sense of civic pride in a way that we cannot even begin to imagine, civic pride that turned into civic idolatry. You see, you have, a, you have an emperor by the name of Nero who was calling upon those citizens of, of Rome and Philippi to, to say things like this, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Savior. So a person who goes to a public event, they would stand together and they would have to, they would have to recite this declaration that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Savior. You think about going to a football game. Just this Friday night, Daniel and I were in Chelsea. We're at a football game. We stand to sing the national anthem, and we did that with solidarity. We did that with pride. We did that without any hesitation. But what we were not doing in that moment was saying that America is Lord or America is Savior. Now, you go back to Rome here. You go back to Philippi. Before these types of events, they don't have football games, but they have sporting events. They have civic events, and they have to stand, and they have to say Caesar is Lord. And Christians, they could not do that because there's only one Lord. And it's not Nero. Now, Nero detests Christians. What we're going to know about church history is, is there's a great fire in Rome. You know who Nero blames that fire on? Upon Christians. So it very well may be that Paul is writing to those Philippian uh, citizens. These are the opponents who are coming against the Philippian Christians because they will not say Caesar is Lord. They will not say Caesar is Savior. Now, we hear these words here, and then 2,000 years ago, they're certainly timely to the Philippian believers, but as a church of Jesus Christ, today, we need to hear that this word stands firm for us today, that Paul is calling Christians, even today, to stand firm in God's truth. Don't shrink back in fear. Paul is saying, uh, know that the, the church of Jesus Christ, it has prevailed. There's a great cloud of witnesses that call us to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because guess what? Empires, they come and they go. Tyrants, they, they stand and then they fall. Pandemics, they come and they go. But the church of Jesus Christ, it stands tall, bruised and battered at times, no doubt. But it stands firm. Why? Because Jesus himself said, the gates of Hades will not prevail over the church of Jesus Christ. He is the head. So we're assured that he gives us the victory, the victory over sin, hell, and the grave itself. And Paul is calling us as Christians to stand firm, to stand together. We're, we're to be like a football team. Not just one quarterback that plays the game by himself, but, but 11 offensive players and 11 defensive players that stand together and play the game together. We're to be like the band at halftime. There's not just one little drummer boy that has a solo, but rather the whole band that comes together to be able to, to give us something that, that one instrumentalist cannot give in her strength alone and her instrument alone. But when they come together, there's this beautiful beautiful sound that rushes forth that is inspiring. And Paul is saying, stand firm together, strive together, stand firm in God's truth. It's one of the reasons that we as a, 
as a church in the last 18 months, the ministerial staff here at Dawson in consultation with our church coordinating team and also our deacon body in conversation with, we, we prayed diligently and, and sought the Lord to be able to articulate freshly in a church with, with 97 years of wonderful faithfulness. But as we stand in this cultural moment, we felt the need, the, the leadership of the Holy Spirit to say, who are we as a church doctrinally? And to be able to have a doctrinal foundation that you can receive this and see this across our campus, on our website. Who are we as the church of Jesus Christ? What do we hold together that are essential for us? So, so in this statement, we're able to say this we believe about the Bible and its authority. This we believe about all of humanity being created in the image of God. This we believe about all of humanity being fallen. This we believe about the great news of the gospel that Jesus lived a life that is perfect. He died a death that we deserve. And through faith in him, we can have a relationship with the holy God. Marriage is a, is a God's gift between a husband and a wife to death do us part. The very sanctity of life. This and many more elements of the, of the faith of the gospel that has been passed down, believed everywhere at every time, passed down from the generations before us. We want to hold this and we want to pass this on to the next generation. We want to hold this because why? We want to stand firm in God's truth and not shrink back. Now, I feel, and I think you feel this too, that when we start talking about doctrine, there, there's a sense where people say, well, doctrine divides. We need to minimize these types of doctrinal holds and, and, and we, need to, we just need to come to a place of compassion. And we need to come to a place of love. But I, I want you to hear me as your pastor that I think in 2021, and I think many of you believe this too, that the, 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 the most loving gift that we can give the world in 2021 is clarity. That, that love is not just mere sentiment, that love is not just platitudes, but love is a message, and it's the message of the person, Jesus Christ. And, and this is a message that has captivated our hearts, and we want to pass down to the next generation. So the, the most loving thing that we can say in 2021 is, is that we're creating the image of God, and guess what? We are fallen as humans. We are sinners who, who stand, and our sin is not something to be trifled with. But, but our sin is a holy affront to God who is perfect in justice and perfect in his righteousness. But praise God that we are able to say, share this message, this message of the gospel that for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the message that we stand firm in. This is the main thing that we as a church rally around the centrality of the gospel. So we don't in 2021 shrink back from this in fear or shrink back from this with social acceptability is the goal, but we stand firm in it and say, God, lead us and give us the courage to share this message today in the days ahead. Now, what we notice in this passage here is that when we stand firm and we don't shrink back in fear, what happens? Verse 28. Isn't it interesting that Paul says this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, what is Paul talking about here? What in the world is Paul talking about? I think it's hard for us to pinpoint this with, with absolute accuracy, but it seems as if Paul is channeling some Old Testament passages here, maybe like Exodus chapter 14, 
Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, you see it on the screen here, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. I think Paul is saying in this passage here that when we stand firm in the gospel, in the face of opposition, it is a witness, it is a platform that, that God uses that because a non-believer who sees a Christian standing firm in the face of opposition, standing firm even though there might be consequences, he or she sees that person and says, there is something different about that person. And God can use that to show them that they're, they're not followers of Jesus and that they stand in the wrath of a, of a holy God. And God uses the conviction of believers in that moment to, to draw about a, a sense of conviction in the life of a non-believer. I mean, we see this in the Old Testament. You've got Daniel who defies the edict of Darius. Darius throws him into the lion's den, but it is through God delivering Daniel where Daniel will say to Darius, I will not bow down to you. And it is Darius praising God at the end because why? Daniel stands tall and God rescues him. You see Nebuchadnezzar, the same thing in the book of Daniel. You've got three young, teenage Jewish boys that are thrown into a fiery furnace. And this king, Nebuchadnezzar, he says, I see Shadrach. I see Abednego. I see uh, Meshach here. But there, there's a fourth in there, and he looks like the son of God. And it's Nebuchadnezzar turning to God as in, in this moment. Because why? They stand firm in the gospel. They don't shrink back in fear. There's a holy resolve that we see in this passage here. And what Paul is saying is that when, when you stand firm in God's truth and you don't shrink back in fear, you don't even shrink back even in the face of suffering. That God uses that to, to do something in your life and he uses that in, in others' lives to build spiritual muscles in many ways. Notice what he says, Paul, in verse 29. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, what is Paul talking about in this passage here? Suffering, being granted, being gifted to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. That he's not only granted us the privilege to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. This is so foreign to our experiences of the Christian life for so many of us. I think Paul is saying in this passage here that God lovingly allows us to suffer for our faith at times to be proof of our faith in him. Uh, to be able to separate the sheep from the goats. To be able to, to, to show the resiliency of the Spirit of God in us that no matter the cost, no matter the consequences, we follow him. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 12 says, indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we live in a context where we, we certainly would want to say there are degrees of suffering. And, and none of us, or not the majority of us at least, when we gathered together today and we heard this beautiful choir and the powerful orchestra, our praise team and band that was leading us today, I do dare say that none of us thought to ourselves that we might be in prison for that. And so persecution and suffering, it looks, it looks 
different in different contexts. There, there's no doubt about that. And, and for the Philippian believers, there was a sense of, of suffering that's very different than what many of us experienced, if not all of us experienced in this American context. But understand that, that we read this passage, not just first and foremost as Americans, but we read this passage as, as Christians who have a father and we have brothers and sisters across this world that when they read this passage, they read it as a present reality. I was with uh, some missionaries with the International Mission Board that were telling me the story of a young lady in her early 20s who showed up in a, in a context where they were ministering that was largely antagonistic to the Christian gospel. This young lady was the first lady out of her family to become a follower of Jesus. They show up to the secret uh, baptismal service, and this 20-year-old young lady comes into the church service, and she is carrying with her her suitcase. And they tell the story as they asked her, uh, why, why are you bringing your suitcase to the service here? And she said, uh, my mom and my dad found out that I became a follower of Jesus, and they found out that I was coming to be baptized to make that public together. And they told me in that moment, you choose Christ or you choose us. Now we sing, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. But for this young lady, as she was choosing in that moment to, to be public in her faith, she was having to say, I choose Christ. I choose Christ even over the approval of my family. I choose Christ even if they deny me. I choose Christ even if I'm disowned. I will bring my suitcase to this service because he is enough. Open Doors is a ministry that chronicles the persecuted church in our world, and they came out with a study just six months ago that said today, in our world, 350 million Christians face intense persecution for their faith. To give you some perspective, that means one out of every eight living Christians, one out of every eight of our brothers, sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ that they read this passage here and they're not thinking about it in the past tense. They're not thinking about it far, far away. They're thinking about it in the very ebb and flow of their everyday life. Now we can thank God that we have tremendous freedoms in the context that we live in. We're not promised by God that we will always have those freedoms. And so it is important for us to, to ponder these types of decisions and, and to count the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Most of us in the sanctuary will not lose our life uh, from intense uh, direct persecution for following Christ. But I wonder, I wonder if it's not more real for us to ponder this morning, is he worth it to you to suffer the loss of comfort and convenience as you follow him? Because I, I assure you, to follow Jesus faithfully means that you will turn from the comfort and convenience of your everyday life where you're saying to yourself, the most important thing that I choose to do in my life is to seek my own pleasure, to seek my own desires. Have you counted the cost of following Christ, which means so often a loss of comfort and convenience for us? There are going to be times... You've experienced this. 
They're not all the time by any stretch of the imagination. They're not all the professions, but to follow Christ for some of you in this room means a, a, a loss of professional opportunity because you come to a fork in the road in your profession. You come to a fork in the road in your job where you're having to say, for, for me to be faithful to what you're asking me to do would be to, to, to be unfaithful to the claim of Christ upon my life, the cause of Christ upon my life. And so there are times where we must count the cost of what it means to to live a life of righteousness and integrity. And at times that, that means that we don't have the professional opportunities that come. Not all the time, by any stretch of the imagination. There's some of us in this room that need to know what it means to, to count the cost of following Christ because it will mean difficult conversations with those that we love. As we stand firm in the truth of God's word, we stand firm in the gospel. It means not that we're angry, not that we're upset, none of that, but that God's truth has grounded us in such a way that we cannot bend, we cannot adapt. We must stand firm in the truth of God's word, whatever the consequences. And at times that means difficult, uh, defining conversations with those that we love friends and family members. And there's some of us that have not counted the cost of faithfully following him in our workplaces or faithfully following him at home or faithfully following him in the relationships that he's given to us. I remember when I was a teenager and I was reading the book of Philippians and I came to this passage, verse 29, that he's granted us for the sake of Christ that we should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. And I just found this passage to just be completely foreign to any experience of the Christian life that I'd had. I mean, it was just incomprehensible to what I had perceived in my own life, what I perceived around me. I had a wonderful pastor growing up. Dr. Bill Baker, he was this gentle, humble, kind-hearted pastor who loved God's Word, and he, he loved teenagers like me. I remember coming up to him after a service, and I said, Dr. Baker, can, can, can we uh, talk about this passage? I, I just don't understand it. And I remember this just tender way that he took me in his office, and we opened up together the book of Philippians, and, and, he, and he shared a lot of things that that I've shared with you. How suffering and persecution and opposition, it it takes a lot of different forms. We talked about the the global church. We we talked about standing firm in the truth of the gospel. We we talked about that, but but when I continue to press him, uh, Dr. Baker, I I, I don't feel the suffering that, that Paul is talking about here. This just seems so foreign to what I see and what's around me. And then I remember in, in just sort of a haunting way as he, as he looked back to the text and he said, well, David, maybe one of the reasons we don't experience the suffering is what comes before the suffering, standing firm striving side by side. And I remember he continued, what does the world even have to oppose? When we think like the world, we sound like the world, we look like the world. And then he asked me a question that I ask you. He said, Maybe one of the reasons we don't suffer for our faith 
is that we're not standing for our faith. And he said, David, are you standing firm for your faith? And I ask you that very same question. Are you standing firm for the faith that has been passed down to you? I think how we answer that question makes all the difference. Let us pray.